do want to start with a announcement here uh, this morning, and that's that our uh, plan for our online class tonight is going to be a little bit different. Uh, so from 5 to 5.20 p.m., there will be a pre-scheduled video, and that'll be uh, available uh, as usual as a Facebook premiere. And then from 5.20 to 5, 6 o'clock, uh, we're going to do a, a Zoom call. I'm just interested in hearing how you're doing. I'm interested in hearing your perspective of what worship services are like, what classes are like, and possibly even what we might be able to do um, to, to improve them. And so if you're able to be a part of that, the link for the Zoom class is going to be on the church website on the Saturday update page. Um, there is also an email sent out about that, but hope as many as possible will be able to participate in that. Uh, as a family, I've noticed that uh, different family members wait differently. Uh, we have one particular family member, and I'll do my best to keep everyone, you know, anonymous here. We have one particular family member who um, is excited when they wait, specifically for things like something like did you know it's my birthday in 183 days? Did you know it's my birthday in 182 days? Did you know it's a bir my birthday in 181 days? Very excited form of waiting. We had one of our children that when they were very young, when they knew we were going somewhere, they would go and they would sit by the door and cry until we left. A very different form of waiting. One member of our family will wait as they tap their feet, as they put their hands on their waist as they communicate with their body language, can't you hurry up? Yeah, that person might just be me. See, we all wait in very different ways. If you think about our family, maybe it's like your family, as you're getting ready for a camping trip, there's all sorts of things to be doing to get ready. And I remember one particular trip, we were grabbing the sleeping bags and the tents and everything that we needed and loading up the van and on one trip, as I'm carrying, you know, handfuls of things to the van, I looked inside, and there's a human being sitting in the van reading a book. And I said, what are you doing? And that individual said, I'm just waiting. And I said, well, while you're waiting, why don't you come and help us carry things and load up the van? What we want to look at this morning is what type of waiting God wants us to be doing. Last week in our, in our sermon, we learned from Matthew. 24 through 36 on, that Jesus is going to talk to us about the importance of waiting. We learned in our parable, the 10 bridesmaids last week, that we can expect this to be a long wait. But what are we to be doing? And how are we to be waiting? Because waiting for something that's going to take 15 minutes is a very different form of waiting for something that's going to take 15 years. How long we have to wait it impacts to do. See, you, what if I told you Jesus is going to come back in one week and I could guarantee it? I suspect you'd wait a little bit differently. Maybe you take Jesus' words from Matthew 25, 13, keep awake, therefore, very literally. And you're going to say, I'm not going to go to sleep because I don't want to be sleeping whenever he comes back. And, and if that's your week, that might just work. But let me just tell you, that's not a very good long-term you're not going to be able to wait 15 years by never sleeping, awaiting Jesus' return. How long we need to wait has a dramatic impact on the kind of waiting that we need to do. And so this week, we're going to look at that kind of waiting. But we're going to start by exploring a, a group of Christians who practiced a form of passive and disengaged 
waiting because they thought Jesus was going to come very soon. So, so the story begins in this way. It starts in Acts 17, where Paul and Silas are in the city of Thessalonica, and they're preaching the gospel. They've been doing that now for three Sabbaths, talking about Jesus and how he rose from the Well, the people in Thessalonica were not all so happy that Paul and Silas were there preaching, and so these riots begin, and they've been staying at the home of a man named Jason, and Jason gets beat up, and that night they decide it's best for us have Paul and Silas leave. And what I want you to notice is when they leave in three weeks into it, it means they didn't teach everything that they wanted to teach. It wasn't that they said, okay, they've got all the teaching they need to get, and now it's time for us to leave. They left prematurely with some of the teaching still incomplete. It seems from 1 Thessalonians that some people began to have uh, stories about when Jesus was coming back. They didn't fully get that whole message about his return. Paul will write them, and in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, I do not want you to be uninformed, which means if he doesn't teach them this, they're going to be uninformed. He talks to them about the nature of Christ's coming. He talks to them about those who have already died in Christ. Fall asleep as others do, but to keep awake and be sober. By the time we get to 2 Thessalonians, it becomes evident that some may have misunderstood what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians. There is some discussion that some are already saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And then there's whose habits have changed dramatically with the assumption that Christ is going to be here imminently. Uh, Paul will say that there are some in the congregation that are living in idleness, not according to the tradition that they received from us. Paul points out how he worked and hard among them, and that there are those who do not follow that, that example. Paul says, we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. They should work quietly and earn their own living. So here's reading between the lines what some in Thessalonica have decided to do. They have decided if Christ is coming back really, really quickly, go to work. And, and that's actually a pretty good point, isn't it? Would you work this week, if you get paid every two weeks, and you knew Jesus was going to come back before your next paycheck, would you go to work knowing you're not even going to get the paycheck for it? If you're a student in school, would you study for the test if you knew Jesus was coming back before the test? If you're at work and you know they're rolling out this computer program software and you don't want to learn that software and you Jesus is coming back before the software is going to be implemented. Are you going to learn it? No. They choose a way of passive waiting where they say, Jesus is surely coming back, whether it be in the next week or next two weeks. And so I'm just going to grab my book. I'm going to sit in the van and I'm going to wait for him to come. And what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians is he corrects that false form of waiting. And Paul is saying, as Christians, we don't wait with idleness. We, in fact, continue with our lives. There will be discussions in the New Testament about the importance of you can go ahead and marry. You can go ahead and have children. I mean, all of these things are questions that are answered by the what kind of waiting are we to do based on how long we are to wait. But Paul's teaching about being active and engaged in our waiting is something that is rooted in a teaching of Jesus. And that's the focus of our parable this morning, the parable of the talents, beginning in Matthew. Verses 14 and following. 
For it is as if a man was going on a journey, and he summoned his slaves, and he entrusted to them some of his property. To, them he gave, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. One of the first things we need to re-remind ourselves is because when we see the word talent, we think of what? We think about, a, you know, ability that we have. A talent is a measurement. Uh, so, so a talent is a way of speaking about an amount of money that weighs a certain amount. And so a talent, whether it was an amount of gold or silver or copper, would be worth different amounts. But a talent is the largest known measurement at that time. So silver, this would be about six denarii, which means it's what we're talking about with one talent is about half a lifetime's labor. Whatever you make in 20 years, that's how much a talent is worth. So it's a huge amount of money. Now for slaves, there's all sorts of slaves across the spectrum, just like there are in, in, in jobs and opportunities. Some slaves were, had very little flexibility, had very little choice, and had very little freedom. But other slaves would function much like middle to upper class management do in companies where they get a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility to do things. These slaves, it seems to be, are those who have a lot of flexibility and a lot of freedom. And they are entrusted with this money. Now, why would a master entrust them with money? Because he wanted them to use it to go out and to make further profit with it. When you get a budget allowance for your company, the intention that that money will be used in such a way that's beneficial for the company. And so this money is entrusted to them. But I wonder, is it a good thing to do you? Well, it just kind of depends. There is the potential when money has been entrusted for it, for it to benefit. Um, again, depending on the type of slave you were, it's possible that up to one half of what you earn on your master's behalf, you get to keep as an individual slave. Even if you were a household slave and you did things that benefited the master, you're going to receive a benefit from that. But the question becomes, what if you don't do what is responsible with that money? And we'll come to find that you indeed can be held liable. There's lots of rabbinic texts about where they're debating, like, what happens if you lose money in this context or in this context or in this context? And what you find, the theme is, if the slave is irresponsible, in other words, if a slave takes the money and he goes home and he puts it outside his front door and he says, hey, I'll go check up on it in a week and somebody steals it, the rabbis would say, you are liable. You have to repay that money because you didn't treat it with proper responsibility. But if you're given that money to, to go about trading and helping to further the master's business and you lose money along the way, then you be liable for it because you were doing the master's work and everybody knows like we do today markets go up and markets go down so there is a possibility and a potential for this to benefit the slave but if they're irresponsible there's a possibility that there might be further retribution on them matthew 25 verses 16 through 17 the one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five talents more. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. First slave and the second slave act in very in mirror ways. So, so immediately they go off almost as if they're excited about this possibility and this potential. And they do three things with money. They, they go off, they trade, and they made. The next slave also did three things with his money in the very next verse. 
He received the talent. He went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. What were the three things that he did? He went off, he dug, and he hid. So we're going to catch up here in just a moment. Matthew 25, 19. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Make sure we notice the main movements of the parable. There's been these four movements. The slaves are entrusted with something. The master departs. The master is gone for a long time, and there is a return. There is to be some sort of accounting. That's where we catch up now in verse 20. Then the one who had received five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. These first two slaves get two titles associated with them. They are good, and they are trustworthy. And so as we think about their goodness and we think about their trustworthiness, we realize that they have done what the master had intended them. They knew that the master expected a prophet, They went out immediately and went about trying to seek ways that they could, in fact, bring a greater profit back to the master. See, what trustworthy slaves ask is, what does the master want me to do with what he's entrusted me with? That they're centered on and focused on the wishes, the desire, the will of the master. And that dictates and determines how they live, and it dictates and it determines how they're going to act and function in the world. But then we have the accounting of this next slave, beginning in verse 24. The one who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers, and on my return, I would have received what was mine with interest. So take this talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. We go from having two slaves described as good and trustworthy to one slave now described as lazy and wicked. Our interpretation of the parable depends on figuring out what this guy did wrong. Ironically, he seems to be in agreement with the first two slaves. He knew that his master expected a prophet. If the three of them sat down and said, hey, what do you think the master wants us to do with this? They would all agree and say he wants to bring about a prophet with it. But for this third person, he sees it in a much more negative context. In fact, he sees it in such a negative context, he says that you are a rich man. One of the things that this third slave does, something I think happens even still today, is he blames someone for his actions and his conduct. Do you see that here in the text? Hey, okay, here, I'm going to give you what's yours, but first let me tell you, this is your problem, because you are a harsh master. This is all your fault, Have you ever been around a person like that? 
that, that no matter what happens, they're not going to say, I'm sorry, I didn't do what was right. I'm sorry, I didn't do what was responsible. All you're ever going to hear is, well, if you hadn't done this, and if you hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have done that. So we begin to see a part of what makes this person both lazy and wicked is their unwillingness to accept responsibility that they have been entrusted with something from and by the master. But what this third slave is not aware of is that he is, in fact, creating the, his own case against him. The master will say, if you knew, he doesn't affirm that he's harsh, but he does affirm, I do expect that I will receive things from those who work under me. That, that, that the master is willing to accept. But he's not saying, I'm not a harsh master because of that. But he wants this third slave to realize, you knew I expected profit, and yet you still wouldn't comply. In fact, there's an interesting comparison between this man and the ten bridesmaids that we previously met. The ten bridesmaids thought that the master was overly generous, overly uh, too much of a pushover. They're like, hey, why should we be prepared? Because even if we need more, we can just run to the store and get some and go to the wedding banquet. And when they showed up at the wedding banquet, they found out that the master was, in fact, harsher, that he did have standards, that he did have expectations that he was going to enforce. And now this person here is saying, hey, those standards and those expectations, I mean, they're just so impossible. Like, there's not even any point in us trying to do what the master did because surely he's going to be disappointed no matter what we do. So where's the right answer? Yes, the master does have standards and expectations, but no, they're not too demanding and they're not too harsh for those who follow the master. So what does he do? Essentially, what he does is he says to the master here, I'm going to you. He, he acts in every way that is in his own best interest. He is selfish in every single sense of the word. So the question becomes, why would he go and put it in the bank? I mean, the, the, the one reason may just simply be, he might just say, well, you know, uh, I really don't care whether the master gets a profit or not. I mean, that's what he wants, but I don't care. But, but there is also this recognition that, that the man realizes when you put a master's money in the bank, you have to then recognize as you go in that you're saying, this is my master's money. So if the master doesn't come back, the money will then be given over to his trust. But if you've buried the money and the master doesn't come back, guess who gets to keep the money? You do. So in other words, he says, I'm going to put my own interest, my own possible benefit if the master doesn't come back ahead of the interest and the benefit of my master. Do you get a sense now why he was a wicked and lazy slave who says, hey, I'm going to make all of my decisions on the basis of what's best for me, what's right for me, and what's in my own best interest. So what are we to learn from this? Terrible. I hope we've already been putting some of the pieces together. Uh, the first thing is that we recognize that we've been entrusted with something, and so then we have to figure out what is talent. And there's all sorts of ideas and interpretations and different ways people allegorize this. But I'm, I'm just very comfortable in saying it's a broad general, anything that we've been entrusted with. So, oh, so are we talking about money here? Yes. Are we talking about gifts here? Yes. Are we talking about talents here? Yes. Are we talking about education here? Yes. Are, are, are we talking about our exposure to the gospel? 
Yes. Are we talking about what we're doing with the truth of the gospel? Yes, 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 yes. A talent can be inclusive of anything that the master has left in our care for his benefit. And as we begin to think of the talent in that way, the kingdom is calling for an entirely new way of living. In in fact, I think this parable gives us an outline for a philosophy of life. I mean, what is life for? What is life about? What is life to be, what is to be done while we're here in this life? Is that we recognize that if we accept the kingdom, we accept the kingdom's way of living. And the kingdom's way of living is this, it's not about you. It's about the interest of your master. What does your master want? What does your master long for? What does he desire? So the question changes from and becomes, what have I received? The question changes from, what do I want? And it becomes the question, what does he want? Do you see the entire orientation of the shift? If we realize all that we have is something that we've received from the master. George Beasley Murray says it in this way, to accept the kingdom is to accept a trust. So here we are, 2020, living in the in-between times. Christ has resurrected. He's told us that he's coming back, and we're trying to figure out how are we to be living? What, what kind of waiting do we need to be doing? And the answer clearly is it needs to be an active waiting, living in a purposeful way for the sake of our master. So if somebody is a mother... The question that they need to be asking themselves is, how can I be a mother that uses what God has entrusted with me in a way that glorifies him? If I am a construction worker, the question I need to be saying is, how can I use this gift that God has entrusted me with in a way that glorifies him? If somebody is a student, they can be asking, how can I, how can I use these gifts that I've been entrusted with in a way that glorifies him? See, it's an orientation that gives direction and guidance to our lives. When I think about the challenge of waiting actively in this world, we, we realize that, that both Jesus and Paul is not calling us to go and hide in a corner and just wait. That we are to be waiting in the midst of all of the activities of life. And it makes me think about Bob Buford. Uh, Buford owned a television company at what many would say was just the right time in history. Between 1954 and 1986, every year his company grew 25% annually. So you can start to see that's a pretty profitable thing to do all, over all those years. But Bird, who was a Christian, became uh, almost obsessed with this question. Are my riches, are all my gains really going to result in losses? And so he was giving serious consideration to, to, to selling the business, to getting out of the business world, and, and to getting into something that was just purely 100% ministry. And he felt like his conscience would be a lot clearer that way because he was really struggling with the tension of living in the world, working in the television industry as a Christian. How was he going to do that? And for any of you who have had that challenge of figuring out that, you realize that there are these tensions. There's a lady named Laura Nash who said, here's the seven tensions common to Christians in the workplace. Serving God versus pursuing mammon. Loving versus competition. People needs versus profit obligations. Family versus work. Keeping a personal perspective in the face of success. Charity versus wealth. Being faithful in a pluralistic workplace. What Buford said he really wanted was a place that was 10 feet above contradiction. Wouldn't you love a life like that? 
10 feet above. I, I never have to deal with these hard questions. I never have to deal with these hard issues. Maybe life would be much easier if I just go sit in the van and read a book and wait till he comes back. Through conversations with mentors, with friends, Buford decided that his life could better serve God if he figured out how to serve him in the midst of his ongoing work. He said that after much wrestling, that he said that the challenge in the second half of life is not to change jobs, it's to change your heart, it's to change the way you view life and the way you order your world. And as I think about the parable of the talents, I think it's a very similar calling. The parable of the talents is not calling us to go sit in the van, read a book, and just wait till it gets back, and try to get your hands dirty as little as possible in the meantime. The delay is for a purpose. There's something that the master wants us to be doing because he's entrusted us with things in the meantime. And a part of our life calling and our mission is to figure out what are the things that I've been entrusted with and then how can I use them for his purposes, for his glory, and for his honor. God is asking us to commit ourselves to a long-term form of waiting. And in that commitment, he's not saying it's going to be a long time, but he's saying prepare for a long time. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And we go into the world with this promise and with this assurance that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God bless.